be reading this morning from Genesis chapter 26. Genesis chapter 26. Hear the word of the Lord. There was a famine in the land, besides the first famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines in Gerar. Then the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Live in the land of which I shall tell you. Dwell in this land, and I will be with you and bless you. For to you and your descendants I give all these lands, and I will perform the oath which I swore to Abraham your father. And I will make your descendants multiply as the stars of heaven. I will give to your descendants all these lands, and in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So Isaac dwelt in Gerar, and the men of the place asked him about his wife, and he said, She is my sister, for he was afraid to say she is my wife, because he thought, Lest the men of the place kill me for Rebekah, because she is beautiful to behold. Now it came to pass, when he had been there a long time, that Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked through a window and saw, and there was Isaac, showing endearment to Rebekah, his wife. Then Abimelech called Isaac and said, Quite obviously she is your wife, so how could you say she is my sister? Isaac said to him, Because I said, Lest I die on account of her. So Abimelech said, What is this you have done to us? One of the people might soon have lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt on us. So Abimelech charged all his people, saying, He who touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. Then Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold, and the Lord blessed him. The man began to prosper, continued prospering, until he became very prosperous, for he had possessions of flocks and possessions of herds and a great number of servants. So the Philistines envied him. Now the Philistines had stopped up all the wells which his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father, and they had filled them with earth. And Abimelech said to Isaac, Go away from us. For you are much mightier than we. Then Isaac departed from there and pitched his tent in the valley of Gerar and dwelt there. And Isaac dug again the wells of water which they had dug in the days of Abraham his father. For the Philistines had stopped them up after the death of Abraham. He called them by the names which his father had called them. Also Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found a well of running water there. But the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, The water is ours. So he called the name of the well Isaac, because they quarreled with him. Then they dug another well, and they quarreled over that one also. So he called its name Sitna. And he moved from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it. So he called its name Rehoboth, because he said, For now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. Then he went up from there to Beersheba. And the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bless you and multiply your descendants for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there and called on the name of the Lord. And he pitched his tent there, and there Isaac's servants dug a well. Then Abimelech came to him from Gerar with Ahuzath, one of his friends, and Phicol, the commander of his army. And Isaac said to them, Why have you come to me, since you hate me and have sent me away from you? 
But they said, We have certainly seen that the Lord is with you. So we said, Let there now be an oath between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you, that you will do us no harm, since we have not touched you, and since we have done nothing to you but good, and have sent you away in peace. You are now the blessed of the Lord. So he made them a feast, and they ate and drank. Then they arose early in the morning and swore an oath with one another, and Isaac sent them away, and they departed from him in peace. And it came to pass the same day that Isaac's servants came and told him about the well which they had dug and said to him, We have found water. So he called it Sheba. Therefore, the name of the city is Beersheba to this day. When Esau was 40 years old, he took his wives, Judith, the daughter of Beeri the Hittite, and Basemath, the daughter of Elon the Hittite, and they were a grief of mind to Isaac and Rebekah. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. Well, this morning marks something of a milestone in our exposition of Genesis. We are now beginning the second half of this book of beginnings. And believe it or not, we have been in Genesis for six months now. And we're halfway through the book. And we find ourselves in a chapter that gives us a bit of deja vu. As I just read this, you may have felt like you'd heard it before. Like, haven't we already covered this? And that's because we have. The reason it seems so familiar is that in this chapter, which focuses on Isaac, it shows him retracing his father's footsteps. The same locations are visited, the same sins committed, the same wells are dug, and even some of the names of the people involved are the same. Isaac relives, so to speak, the events of Abraham's life here in chapter 26. Now, it's interesting as we think about Isaac. He is the son of promise, uh, the, the one who had been promised to Abraham for so long, anticipated that the build-up to his birth was a, a good deal of the tension in the story. Of all the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, Isaac lives the longest he will live 180 years. And yet, as we consider the book of Genesis and what we learn of Isaac here, we know very little about him. The first 11 chapters of Genesis take us from creation through the Tower of Babel and the disbursement. And then chapter 12 begins the story of Abraham. And there are 12 chapters focused on the life of Abraham. Next week, we'll begin... Uh, more of a focus on the life of Jacob, Isaac's son. And there will be 12 chapters focused on Jacob. And then the final 12 chapters of Genesis will focus on Joseph. That leaves only three chapters about Isaac. One of those is the search for his bride. One of those was the death of Abraham and the birth of Isaac's sons. This is the only chapter that really gives us much information about Isaac. We, we've seen his birth uh, we did see the episode where Abraham was commanded to offer him on the mountain in chapter 22, but then he plays a very minor role in the events of chapters 24 and 25. And chapter 26 now gives us uh, the information about the life of Isaac. But 
is simply a repetition of events in the life of Abraham. And, and this is not the first time that we've seen this. We've seen uh, in previous chapters repetition and similarity between events in the book of Genesis. And as we've noted previously, this doesn't happen by accident. It's the providence of God at work to cause such repetition in the lives of the patriarchs. And there's a purpose in that and a purpose in the recording of it in Scripture for us. So our job this morning is to note these similarities and to discern the divine purpose in causing things to happen and to be recorded in such similar ways. What is God communicating to his people by the repetition of these events? What is his purpose in recording it in Holy Scripture for us? There's something here for us to learn. And I would suggest that the purpose is to teach us that God's faithfulness in the past can be counted on in the present and in the future. In other words, Isaac knew of God's faithfulness to his father, Abraham. The events of his life recorded in this chapter were meant to teach him that he could trust the faithfulness of God in his own life. And they're meant to teach us that we also can trust the faithfulness of God in our lives. God's faithfulness in the past can be counted on in the present and the future. We know that one of the defining moments in the book of Genesis in all of Scripture, really, is the call of Abraham in chapter 12. So let me read to you once again the first three verses of chapter 12 just by way of reminder. Now the Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your family and from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, there are a number of promises that God makes to Abraham in this short passage. He promises to lead him to a land to dwell in. He promises to make him a great nation. In other words, to give him a multitude of descendants. He promises to bless him, to protect him. And he promises to bless others through Abraham. Isaac surely knew of this event in the life of his father, of these promises that God had made. I imagine that the family probably memorized the words of God in this promise to Abraham, meditated on them, probably discussed them at great length. Isaac himself was the son of promise. He was the proof that God keeps his word. And he has inherited the promises of the covenant from his father Abraham. But God hasn't spoken to Isaac yet at this point in his life. He's still living in tents as a pilgrim, unsettled, not owning land in the land of promise. He may have begun to wonder about these promises, wondering if God had forgotten him. We don't know, but it seems that that's possible. God had not spoken to him. At this point, he's over 60 years old, and he's yet to hear from the Lord. Chapter 1 opens with, or chapter 26 opens in verse 1 with news of a famine. There was a famine in the land besides the first famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines in Gerar. Now, famine usually involved drought, 
Uh, the lack of water results in a poor harvest, poor grazing, thinning herds and flocks, which all adds up to a shortage of food, a famine. And Isaac had a large operation, many flocks and herds, many servants, a lot of mouths to feed. So a famine is bad news for the family business. So when this one comes, Isaac is looking for some relief. He's got to find food and water uh, for his entire household. Verse 1 makes a point of reminding us that there was also a famine in Abraham's day. That famine happened a hundred years previous, and when it did, Abraham was in the same situation that Isaac now finds himself in. He was looking for food and water for his flocks, his herds, and his household. In chapter 12, verse 10, it said, Now there was a famine in the land, and Abraham went down to Egypt to dwell there, for the famine was severe in the land. So when Abraham is faced with this famine, he he goes to Egypt. Now, uh, the presence of the Nile River, a large river, the fertile crescent there around the river means that there's water and food to be found there. And it appears that Isaac is considering the same course of action because in verse 2, we find that God finally visits him in his hour of need and tells him not to go to Egypt. Then the Lord appeared to him and said, do not go down to Egypt. Live in the land of which I shall tell you. So finally, God speaks to Isaac, and God tells him not to go to Egypt, but to stay in the land of promise. And notice the similarity with the call of Abraham. Isaac is to live in the land of which I shall tell you, just as God had told Abraham in chapter 12 to go to a land I will show you. Furthermore, God says in verse 3, Dwell in this land, and I will be with you and bless you. For to you and your descendants I give all these lands, and I will perform the oath which I swore to Abraham your father. So we're reminded of the promise that was made to Abraham. And, And here God renews that promise with Isaac. The land will be an inheritance for your descendants. I will be with you and bless you just as he had promised these things to Abraham in chapter 12. Then he says in verse 4, And I will make your descendants multiply as the stars of heaven. I will give to your descendants all these lands, and in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. So here's the promise of a multitude of descendants, the promise of the Messiah, the one who will come from Isaac's line to bring a blessing to all the nations of the earth. All the promises made to Abraham in chapter 12 are here renewed with Isaac. And he is to stay in the land, to stay in Gerar. Now, Abraham had once stayed here as well in chapter 20. Abraham knew the king of Gerar, Abimelech. Now, it's not likely that this is the same king. It's a hundred years later. This is probably a son or a grandson. It is likely that Abimelech is a title rather than a name, kind of like calling the king of Egypt the Pharaoh. The king of the Philistines was Abimelech. So Abraham stayed in Gerar. Now Isaac stays in Gerar. But now God continues to speak, and verse 5 is a little difficult at first glance because it could be read to indicate that the blessings that God has promised are a result of obedience. He says, "...because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws." But if we think back to the life of Abraham, it's, it's clear that God blessed him in spite of his sin and failings. 
So it's better to read this because at the beginning of verse 5, as John Calvin suggests, is not referring to the blessing, but rather as a referring back to the command. Calvin says, he now commends the obedience of Abraham in order that Isaac may be stimulated to an imitation of his example. In other words, God is not saying that he will bless Isaac because of Abraham's obedience, but rather that Isaac should obey him and stay in the land because his father Abraham had obeyed. So do not go down to Egypt, dwell in the land, I will tell you, because your father obeyed me and kept my commandments. Therefore, so should you. So we find in the very next verse that Isaac did obey. He didn't go to Egypt. He stayed in Gerar. Now remember that Gerar is on the border of what will later become the territories of Simeon and Judah. So Gerar is firmly within the promised land. And Isaac stays there. Unfortunately, he repeats the same sin, the same mistake that his father did in this same location. Verse 7, the men of the place asked about his wife and he said, she is my sister. For he was afraid to say she is my wife because he thought, lest the men of the place kill me for Rebekah because she is beautiful to behold. Now Abraham told this same lie twice, in fact. He did it in Egypt and he did it in Gerar with uh, the king at the time. And he was rebuked by the Philistine king. If you remember that, Abraham and Sarah both were rebuked by the Philistine king for their deception. Isaac tells the same lie with even less truth in it. And he gets caught in his lie in verse 8. Now it came to pass when he had been there a long time that Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked through a window and saw, and there was Isaac showing endearment to Rebekah, his wife. So they had been there for some time, some length of time. Abimelech looks out the window one day and he sees Isaac and Rebekah laughing and showing affection to one another. Now, this is the same Hebrew word that was used in chapter 19, if you'll remember, when the angels commanded Lot to get out of Sodom. And he goes to his sons-in-law and tells them, we have to leave town. God is about to destroy it. And it says that his sons-in-law thought he was joking. And that's the Hebrew word that's used here. Uh, So the picture is that Isaac and Rebekah are joking around as a husband and a wife will in an intimate sort of way. And it became clear to Abimelech that they weren't brother and sister. They were, in fact, husband and wife. And so Abimelech calls Isaac to account for his deception. And he says in verse 9, Then Abimelech called Isaac and said, Quite obviously, she is your wife. So how could you say she is my sister? Isaac said to him, because I said, lest I die on account of her. And Abimelech said, what is this you have done to us? One of the people might soon have lain with your wife and you would have brought guilt on us. Now, just as Abraham was rebuked by a Philistine king for his lie and the trouble that it could have caused, so too now Isaac is rebuked by a Philistine king. He is rehearsing the events of his father's life. And it's amazing that Isaac commits this same sin in the same place. And even more amazing that this heathen king, a Philistine no less, has more integrity in the matter than Isaac does. As John Calvin comments, Wherefore, let us remember that we must walk in the light which God has kindled for us, lest even unbelievers who are wrapped in the darkness of ignorance should reprove our stupor. 
And certainly, when we neglect to obey the voice of God, we deserve to be sent to oxen and asses for instruction. Ouch. Shameful for God's people to be corrected on matters of morality and ethics by those who do not have the light of the Holy Spirit and the instruction of God's word, but are only acting on their natural conscience and the the law of God that is written on their hearts from creation, that they should correct God's people and rebuke us for immoral and unethical actions is shameful. But this is what happens on multiple occasions in the life of Abraham and now in the life of Isaac. Abraham or Abimelech then issues an order that his people are not to touch Isaac or Rebekah or they will suffer uh, the death penalty. Now, it's interesting to note the difference between this episode in Isaac's life and the one that occurred in Abraham's life. There's a lot of similarities, but there's a difference as well. In chapter 20, God warned the Philistine king in a dream. Here, there's no such divine warning. The king discovered the deception by looking out the window and using discernment. Now, of course, God sovereignly made sure that he looked out the window at just that moment and saw Isaac and Rebekah cavorting around, but he was discerning enough to know what he was seeing. And he was concerned about the consequences of such a deception leading to a violation of the marriage covenant and bringing guilt on his people. What a condemnation that is of our modern American culture that even the Philistines held marriage in more esteem than we do. But now the truth is out in the open. Isaac and Rebekah have come clean, their husband and wife, and they continue to dwell in Gerar. And then verse 12 introduces a new thing to the, to the story. Isaac begins to be a farmer. He's no longer just keeping flocks. He's now sowing seed. Then Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold, and the Lord blessed him. Now it appears from what follows that Isaac didn't own any of the land. So it's likely that he had simply leased some land to to sow seed on or that he was planting an area that was considered public land in the territory. But God blessed his efforts and his crop returned a great harvest in a time of famine. God is keeping his promise to be with Isaac and to bless him. He's protected him from the consequences of his sin. He has rebuked him as a son, increasing his sanctification. And now he blesses his efforts at farming. And because of this blessing, Isaac's wealth and power increase greatly. And so we see in verse 13, the man began to prosper and continued prospering until he became very prosperous. Three times the word prosper or prosperous is used. It makes the point that just as God had blessed Abraham during his time in Gerar, so too he is blessing Isaac, maybe even more so. But as the saying goes, more money, more problems. And Isaac encounters those problems. Verse 14, for he had possessions of flocks and possessions of herds and a great number of servants. So the Philistines envied him. So as Isaac's wealth increases, this leads to conflict with the Philistines. They begin to envy his wealth and his power. There's a famine in the land. Here this outsider comes in to dwell among them, assumes the worst about them, lies to them, and then he gets rich by planting their ground. 
And this causes some strife, causes some envy. But the envy and the strife had deeper roots than simply this episode. Abraham had dug wells in this territory when he was there. But we find in verse 15 that the Philistines had filled them in. Now the Philistines had stopped up all the wells which his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father. And they had filled them with earth. Now I tell my kids all the time, don't chew with your mouth open because we're not Philistines. Don't leave your dirty clothes laying on the floor because we're not Philistines. I'm saying that constantly around our house. But after seeing Abimelech's integrity, his concern for the truth and the sanctity of marriage, his rebuke of Isaac, I began to question, maybe I've judged the Philistines too harshly. But then I read verse 15. Perfectly good wells. Instead of using them, they filled them with dirt. Philistines indeed. And then Abimelech tells Isaac, you're no longer welcome here. You need to leave. In verse 16, Abimelech said to Isaac, Go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. Now, it's hard to know if Abimelech is acting out of envy himself or if he's simply trying to keep the peace. He knows that his people have begun to envy Isaac. He knows that he has issued an order previously that no one is to harm Isaac on threat of death. And so perhaps he's just afraid that if Isaac doesn't leave, there's going to be conflict. I'm going to end up having to punish my own people. And so it would just be better to send Isaac away. And it's not going to be good if there is conflict because Isaac's household has grown to the point that he now is mightier than the entire Philistine population. A century earlier, you might remember, Abraham had over 300 trained fighting men who had been born in his household. Isaac has increased in wealth greatly since that time. He has a small army at his disposal. So the Philistines not only envy his wealth, but they begin to fear his power. While the events of this chapter reenact the events of Abraham's life, they also foreshadow some coming events. The Egyptians will later subject the Israelites to very harsh treatment for this same reason, fear of their strength as a people. Of course, there's also the foreshadowing of Christ here. It's interesting to note that Isaac, as the son of promise, who inherits all that belongs to his father, which of course points forward to Abraham's greater son, Christ, whom he, God the Father, has appointed heir of all things, we're told in Hebrews 1. Abraham was known as the man of faith. He's the man of the altar. He built many altars throughout his lifetime. Jacob, we've already seen, is known as the man of the tents. But Isaac is most closely associated with wells of water. We see that in this chapter. Throughout his time, we're constantly told where Isaac is living in relation to a well. And throughout this chapter, uh, it's caught up with the digging of wells. Christ refers to himself as a well of living water. So it's interesting to note that unlike Abraham, Jacob, and Joseph, Isaac, who represents sonship as the promised son, who is most closely associated with Christ as a type, Isaac never leaves the land of promise. Abraham does, Jacob does, Joseph does, but Isaac, as the son of promise, the heir, stays in the land of promise. And so all of this is pointing forward to Christ in many, many ways. But here particularly, the inhabitants of the land envy him 
and they seek to drive him away, nearly 2,000 years later, the Jewish leaders will seek to have Christ killed out of envy for his popularity with the people. So there are hints here of the coming Messiah, the greater son of promise. But there begins to be a great deal of strife now between Isaac and the Philistines because of his great wealth and because of this envy. And we might remember when Abraham returned from Egypt, he was wealthy and his nephew Lot was with him and Lot also was wealthy. And that great wealth caused strife between the herdsmen of Lot and the herdsmen of Abraham so that they were forced to separate. Now Isaac is having that same situation occur in his life because of his great wealth. He's asked to leave Gerar, and so he does, but he doesn't go far in verse 17. Then Isaac departed from there and pitched his tent in the valley of Gerar and dwelt there. So he leaves town, but not the territory. He just moves down the street, so to speak. He goes down the valley a little ways, but he's still in their territory. Water is still a concern, and so he has his servants reopen the wells that Abraham had dug a generation earlier. Verse 18, And Isaac dug again the wells of water which they had dug in the days of Abraham his father. For the Philistines had stopped them up after the death of Abraham. And he called them by the names which his father had called them. So he gives the wells the same names that Abraham had given them. He's kind of making the point that he has a right to this water. His father invested a lot of labor in digging these wells. The Philistines obviously weren't using them. They had filled them with dirt. Isaac has now invested labor in reopening the wells, and so he gives them the same names to say, I have a right to this water. But the Philistines disagree. It says also Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found a well of running water there. So we got a new water, a new well with living water, running water, and the Philistines decide they're going to claim all this water for themselves. So it says in verse 20, The herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, The water is ours. So he called the name of the well Isaac, because they quarreled with him. The name that he gives the well, Isaac, is a Hebrew word which means quarrel or contention. So this is the well of quarreling or the well of contention. Then in verse 21, we find that they dug another well, and they quarreled over that one also. So he called its name Sitna. Now this name means hatred. This is the well of hatred. So Isaac takes the hint, and he, he moves out of their territory, and he digs another well in verse 22. And he moved from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it. So he called its name Rehoboth, because he said, For now the Lord has made room for us and we shall be fruitful in the land. Now, Rehoboth means room or spaciousness, and so this is the well of ample room or space. But Isaac doesn't remain there. We see in the next verse that he journeys on from there to Beersheba. This is in verse 23. Then he went up from there to Beersheba. So note the topography. He went up to Beersheba. He leaves the valley and he goes back up into the mountains where Abraham had been accustomed to dwelling. And when he has finally separated himself from the Philistines, separated himself from the world, and returned to the place where his father had previously dwelt, then the Lord appears to him once again. And this is similar, again, to the life of Abraham, because when Abraham and Lot separated, the Lord appeared to Abram immediately after. 
And so we read in verse 24, and the Lord appeared to him that same night and said, I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not fear for I am with you. I will bless you and multiply your descendants for my servant Abraham's sake. Now this is the third time that blessing is mentioned in the chapter. God had promised blessing in verse 3. And then God blessed Isaac in verse 12, and now he promises further blessing. Now, how does Isaac respond to this at this point? Well, he responds with worship. It says in verse 25, So he built an altar there and called on the name of the Lord. He pitched his tent there, and there Isaac's servants dug a well. Now, if we think back, Genesis chapter 12, Abraham built an altar in this same location. And then in chapter 13, Abraham returned to this same location, and we're told that it was there that he called on the name of the Lord. And now Isaac has done both. He has built an altar and called on the name of the Lord in the same location that his father had done so. And his servants begin to dig another well. But now Abimelech shows up. He's got the commander of his army with him and one of his counselors. And Isaac is a little wary. And so he asks them, "Why, why have you come to me? You've shown me nothing but hatred and hostility. You sent me away from you. Note Abimelech's response in verse 28. But they said, we have certainly seen that the Lord is with you. So we said, let there now be an oath between us, between you and us. Let us make a covenant with you. So it had been obvious to Abimelech that Rebekah was Isaac's wife and not his sister. So now it is obvious to Abimelech that the Lord is with Isaac and blessing him. And so he has come in hopes of establishing a peace treaty with him. He says in verse 29, they want to make this covenant with you that you will do us no harm since we have not touched you and since we have done nothing to you but good and have sent you away in peace. You are now blessed of the Lord. God had promised blessing in verse 3. He had given blessing in verse 12. He had promised blessing again uh, there in verse 24, and now once again we're told that Isaac is blessed of the Lord. So Isaac makes a feast for his guests, as a king might do, displaying his power and his wealth. The next morning they make an oath not to harm one another, and then Abimelech leaves with the peace treaty that he had come uh, seeking. So God promises to bless the nations through Isaac, and that is found in immediate fulfillment here in the peace that he has with Abimelech. But that's just a shadow pointing forward to the substance of Christ, the promised seed who would bring salvation to the nations. But when Abimelech leaves, Isaac's servants then come and tell him that they have completed the well and successfully struck water. And it says in verse 33, so he called it Sheba. Therefore, the name of the city is Beersheba, to this day. Now you might remember from chapter 21 that then uh, the king of the Philistines, the Abimelech from Gerar, had sought out Abraham and found him in this same location. And likewise, they had struck a peace treaty. There had been a dispute over a well, and they settled that dispute, and Abraham named the place Beersheba, which meant well of the oath. So once again, Isaac has relived another scene from his father's life. Also in chapter 21, that same chapter in Abraham's life, we saw Ishmael take wives, take a wife from the land of Egypt. And now we find that Isaac's son Esau has taken two wives from among the Canaanites. And it says 
they were a grief of mind to Isaac and Rebekah. So what is the point of all this repetition? Well, as I suggested at the start, it's, it's, the point is, is that God's faithfulness in the past can be counted on in the present and the future. Isaac knew of God's faithfulness to Abraham. He had likely heard the story of all these events, and now he has relived them, the sin, the strife, the blessing, and all of it. The events of his life recorded in this chapter were meant to teach him that he could trust the faithfulness of God just as his father had. And they are meant to teach us that we also can trust the faithfulness of God in our lives. God dwelt, uh, dealt with Isaac according to the promises which he had made to Abraham and then reaffirmed with Isaac. Likewise, we can have confidence that God will deal with us according to the promises he has made in his word. He promised a son, a seed of Abraham, who would be a blessing to the nations. This is the same promise that was made to Adam and Eve in the garden. The offspring, the seed of Eve, who would defeat Satan and bring reconciliation with God. And indeed, that seed has come, who is Christ. God kept his promise. Listen to these words from Ephesians chapter 1. In him, that is Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. We can trust the faithfulness of God. He sent the promised seed to bring forgiveness and redemption, reconciliation with our Creator, giving us an everlasting inheritance in the eternal, never-ending kingdom of His glory. How can we have assurance of this forgiveness? We can have assurance because He has promised that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He has proved Himself faithful in the past. And as we learned in CLA this morning, God does not change the past, the present, the future. It's all the same to him. If he was faithful then, he is faithful now, and he will be faithful in the future. Therefore, brethren, we're told in Hebrews, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful." We can read the accounts of the lives of the patriarchs here in Genesis. They are our spiritual forefathers. Just as Isaac could trust the faithfulness of God because he had been faithful to Isaac's father, we can trust the faithfulness of God because he has been faithful to our spiritual forefathers. And this gives us an assurance that the immutable, unchanging God is just as faithful now as he was then. 
And we can have assurance that he will also be faithful in the future. That the promise that he has made concerning the resurrection, everlasting life in his presence, and an inheritance in the coming kingdom are promises that we can trust because our God is faithful. In verse 24, the second time God appeared to Isaac, he blessed him and God said, the Lord appeared to him that same night and said, I am the God of your father, Abraham. Now, just as Jesus would later tell the Sadducees who doubted the promise of the resurrection, but concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob? God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And we see that right here in verse 24. Abraham had died previous to this event, and yet God says he is the God of Abraham. Not that he was the God of Abraham. The promise of life beyond this life and of the resurrection is contained right here in the words of the one who cannot lie. God's faithfulness in the past can be counted on in the present and the future. A dear friend of mine, brother in the Lord, mentor, Pastor Mike Renahan passed away on Friday. And I admit that I cried when I heard the news from his wife. I cried for her loss and grief, but also for Mike's joy. God is faithful. Mike is now with the one who loved him and whom he treasured. We have hope for the future because of the faithfulness of our God who has promised us everlasting life with him in the kingdom. Now, there are two other ways in which the faithfulness of God is seen in this chapter. First, notice that Isaac went to the world for help instead of turning first to God. When the famine came, he didn't resort to prayer or seek God's direction. He just went to the Philistines and was likely considering going further to Egypt. But God was faithful to stop him, to provide for him abundantly during a time of hardship. During a drought and a famine, Isaac's crops yielded a hundredfold harvest. But he met with strife and contention from the Philistines to whom he had gone. But note the faithfulness of God. God used that strife and that contention with the world to separate Isaac from the world and to bring him out of the valley back to the mountain, back to a dwelling place that God had prepared for him. It is often during times of strife and hardship that we question the faithfulness of God. It is precisely at those times that God is at work in our lives to humble us, to teach us dependence, and to draw us back to himself. The hardship that we experience happens according to the sovereign providence of God, and it is designed for our good. The apostle Paul said that God gave him a thorn in the flesh for two purposes, one, to humble him, and two, to teach him to rely on the grace of God rather than his own strength. We see throughout the history of the nation of Israel that during times of hardship, they turned again and again to God in dependence. But when in their trouble, they turned to the Lord God of Israel and sought him, he was found by them. Suffering and adversity teaches us to turn to God in faith and to trust in the faithfulness of the one who has called us by his grace. 
And when we wander from him, grow cold in our affections, or begin to trust in the things of this world, it is then that he shows himself faithful and brings adversity upon us for our good. The other way that we see the faithfulness of God in our text is in the fact that God kept his promise and blessed Isaac in spite of Isaac's sin. In verse 3, God had promised that if Isaac were to dwell in this land, he said, I will be with you and bless you. God promised to be with Isaac. That's a promise of protection, a promise of provision. And yet Isaac turned right around and immediately lied to Abimelech and the men of Gerar about Rebekah because he was afraid for his life. He was not trusting in God's promise, and he sinned by lying. And yet, God blessed him anyway. First, as a faithful father, God disciplined Isaac as a son. He used Abimelech, a Philistine king, to rebuke Isaac for his sin. In Hebrews, it tells us that if you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? God faithfully chastened Isaac as a son. And then he went on to bless Isaac abundantly in spite of his sin. From which we can learn with 2 Timothy 2.13 that if we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. God kept his promise even though Isaac didn't deserve it. Likewise, we can trust that when we suffer humbling and chastening from the Lord, it is for our good As it says in Hebrews, that when God chastens us, he chastens us for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. It's not pleasant to be chastened by the Lord. Hebrews goes on to say, now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. God is faithful even when we are not. And he chastens those whom he loves. He brings us back to him in faith and increases our holiness. Charles Spurgeon once said, The Lord always trains his soldiers, not by letting them lie on feather beds, but by turning them out and using them to forced marches and hard service. He makes them ford through streams and swim through rivers and climb mountains and walk many a long march with heavy knapsacks of sorrow on their backs. This is the way in which he makes soldiers, not by dressing them up in fine uniforms to swagger at the barrack gates and to be fine gentlemen in the eyes of the loungers in the park. God knows that soldiers are only to be made in battle. They are not to be grown in peaceful times. God's faithfulness in adversity trains us for holiness. It's the soldier's rations on which our souls feast. David writes in the Psalms, Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. God's faithfulness in the past can be counted on in the present and in the future. So let us proclaim with the psalmist, Your mercy, O Lord, is in the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the clouds. Let's pray.